Hey everybody, Tyree here with Before I Forget, along with the greatest host in the history of hosts, Mr. Kevin. Say hey, Kevin. Hey, Kevin. And he has a, an extremely, extremely special guest for uh, for you guys to hear today. You want to go ahead and introduce? So, so here's here's the deal, y'all. Um, this guy that we have coming on the show today is a legend of legends, right? Not just a legend in general, a legend of legends. Like this guy is above and beyond all the things that anybody who's served in the United States Army, United States military knows about the the expectations of what like a true soldier is, um, a a career spanning three decades. Um, There's a lot that I could say about him, but I'm gonna let him talk about himself because, you know, we want to hear it straight from the man's mouth. Um, Sergeant Major Mike uh, Vining. Hello. Uh First of all, I want to apologize uh, to the listeners out, the viewers out there, because right now my video is, seems to be frozen, but um, I'm here with you. Thanks for the introduction. Yeah, I'm still working on introductions. Um, it's not my strong suit for sure, but um, I'm just really excited to be able to, uh, to have this opportunity to speak with you because, um, you know, I've, I've heard stories about what you and your uh, your comrades uh, did um, back in the day, and I've the 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 meme of you. I'm, I'm sure you're aware of the the memes surrounding you. Um, <clears throat> I, I've seen those floating around for years, and I never thought in my life that I would be able to um, to, to sit down and be able to speak to you. So this is like it really is like <laughs> such a great honor to be here uh, on my side. So um, yeah, and 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 don't worry about the whole video thing. I mean, it's it is what it is. Um, uh, I'm just I'm just excited to hear stories. <laughs> hey, <there. clears throat> well, yeah, the the meme thing. I think that meme started around uh, 2000 and maybe 2008 or something like that. You know, I joined the a website called Army Together We Serve mm-hmm. website. It's um, there's the there's Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, Coast Guard. They're all tied together. So I put my information on the website, Army Together We Serve, because on that website, you can put in what unit you were in and in the time period that you were in. And uh, other people that are on the website, uh, will it, it will show you that what other people that you serve with on the website. And it's a great website, the Together We Serve websites to do remembrance profiles. I have several people that I have put remembrance profiles on, uh, including family members that served in the military. Oh, that's cool. I've, n- I've never actually heard of that. Uh, I want to check that out. Um, yeah. And, and part of my uh, bad introductions, um, I didn't even mention what unit you were a part of. Um, but I, I will say this to our listeners and viewers. Um, he was a part of the unit. And if you, <laughs> if you, uh, if you're familiar with, with, uh, things in the army, the unit only refers to one unit and, uh, yeah. 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 We, uh, yeah, we just call ourselves the unit. The, the full name is first special forces. Operational Detachment Delta Airborne. That's the full name, or first SFOD Delta. Uh, but we just call ourselves the unit. Uh, other people 
know us by various uh, different names. CAG is one common name uh, that, uh, and that was one of our cover names and it was the Combat Application Group. Uh, we had several of them. One was See Me. Uh, uh, what was See Me? That, that was really funny. And um, yeah, it, so, but either we call ourselves the unit. So um, I got to say, so I'm still, I'm in the Army Reserves. Um, I'm a drill sergeant in the uh, Reserves. And um, it's, it's, it's funny to me because whenever we have group chats and everything, and when we refer to our company, uh, you know, people will be like, yeah, so we're going to meet at the unit or, hey, um, hey, why don't you come over to the unit? Or hey, we're, we're talking about recruiting somebody. It's like, hey, why don't you recruit them into the unit? I'm like, and it always reminds me of, you know, Delta and how 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 you guys refer to yourselves as the unit. And I'm like, you know, we're not the unit. We're just a unit in the reserves. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's the unit's simpler than the whole for, right. formalized name. Um. <clears throat> yeah. So. I went to the unit in 1978, uh, the spring of, I think it was March of 78, when I first went to the, the unit. Uh, and I can tell you how that story went, uh, if that's where you want to, would like to start, or would you like to start at the beginning of my career? Um, question before we get into all that stuff, uh, being a part of something so secretive initially, what is it like to uh and to go back to be a meme to be something that's everywhere to have your face plastered on many many different internet websites yeah i i don't know how it all got started like i say i posted on the together we serve i posted some uh pictures of me the my one of them of course is my retirement photo that was taken a couple of months before i retired and that started, somebody took it off the, probably off the website and that started circulating. And at first, you know, people didn't know who I really was. You know, I seemed to pop up out of nowhere because I've been on the, the black side for, oh gosh, you know, several years on the black side. And so they were just, there was a lot of speculation of who I was and, and, uh, and, and, and then there was even, you know, some speculation that uh, I could have been um, stolen, a stolen valor type thing, mm. you know, with all my different types of bat cross mix of badges and stuff. Uh, one was the, the placement, the order of my badges on my uniform. Uh, the EOD, the Master EOD badge was one of the lower ranking badges as it was placed on my uniform. And of course, uh, that made some questions. Why wasn't it above the Airborne Parachutist badge, which it is now? But that regulation change didn't take place until 2002. You know, before that, the Master EOD badge was a category in the category five. And now it has moved up to category two. It should have always been a category two, but um, but because it takes, a, it's a lot harder to earn the EOD badge than it is to, you know, the airborne badge for an example. 
Right. Uh, all you got to do is make five jumps out of an airplane. But the master, well, the EOD badge, you know, it's almost, it's about six months of schooling. It's one of the hardest schools academically in the military. It is a very, we have a, a washout rates quite high. Um, and then unlike the other badges, you have, in order for the EOD badge to be a permanent award, you have to serve in the EOD unit for 18 months. Whereas the other badges, when you earn them, whether it be a combat, you know, air assault badge or a parachutist badge, it's a permanent award upon completion of the school. But eight EOD, you have to, to be a permanent award 18 months. Well, and, I, and I'm looking at the the picture that I think you're talking about in your in your dress screens, the one that was actually turned into a meme um, uh -huh. that says, do you, uh, you don't operate, do you, son? <laughs> yeah, I don't know who, I don't know who did that. Uh, that was cute, you know. And also the term that's always been, uh, you know, how did the term operator originate too? You know, that was, there's a, I've seen articles on the internet explaining the term operator and how it was applied and you know it when we would after selection and assessment you would go to the operator training course mm -hmm. it's about a five month long operator training course but in the operator training course you learn all kinds of skills you know skills that are outside the normal what you usually do for the military uh, you learn how to pick locks you go through classes you know we had photography classes we learned how to develop film uh, you know slides and and do do film developing when we had film cameras before uh before the digital cameras and um we just we even had classes on how to steal vehicles to hotwire and steal vehicles. Um, when we went into Iran, uh, we had hotwire kits. We carried those in our on us uh, to if we got caught in Iran during the, the Iran hostage rescue mission, and we had to E and E, uh, we would. Uh, have to steal cars we were taught you know which are the cars that are the easiest cars to steal so those were those are some of the different things you know we learned trade craft mm -hmm. you know how to do dead drops it's just the whole gamut uh, of things you had to learn through the operator training course and uh and of course, we have a saying in Delta too: is uh, selection is a never-ending process. Just because you go through selection assessment, it, it it's every day. Right. Well, and so, and for our listeners and viewers um, that don't know, you were a part of the very first operator training course in nineteen seventy. Yeah, yeah, I went to the first one. I was in the EOD. And, uh, and I was in the conventional EOD unit, the 63rd at Fort Leonard Wood. And um, I had gone through EMT training. Uh, we, I, there was an accident with an IED and the person I was with was killed 19, at Quincy, Illinois, 
It was domestic terrorism where they had planted a bunch of bombs in Quincy, Illinois in 1976. And one of the bombs failed to go off. And the person I was working with went down on the bomb and it detonated while he was down there. And I was the first person to him. And that was a master sergeant promotable, uh, Ken Foster. Um, and uh, But he was killed immediately and there was nothing I could do. But I figured that I needed better medical training, you know, in this type of job, explosive ordnance disposal. So I went through an EMT course, college course, nationally cert registered as an EMT. And so I figured with that, I would go to special forces as a medic. Uh, so I put in a paperwork to be a special forces medic. I had a class date all set up to go. Uh, everything was fine. And then I get a telephone call from my sergeant major at our control detachment. And he says, Mike, he knew I was leave, leaving EOD, going into special forces. And he said that they're forming a new unit at Fort Bragg. And they're looking for at least six EOD folks uh, to be part of the new unit, NCOs, you know, E5 promotables, E6, E7, you know, if they have combat experience, preferably, and I was, you know, served in Vietnam. So they're looking for EOD folks in this new unit at Fort Bragg. So he gave me the telephone number. I called. They said, can you come for an interview? Uh, two days later, I think it was, I flew to Fort Bragg. I went to the old stockade there on Butner Road. And, um, and did my interview. I interviewed with Colonel Charlie Beckwith. Uh, and uh, within a short period of time, I PCS'd to Fort Bragg and, uh, and, and OTC-1 was just starting. They had already, in, the unit had set up in about October of 1977 and they ran a fall selection course. And so those people that went through the fall selection course were going to go to OTC one. And, but I had just got in there and there was five other EOD guys that were there. And uh, they decided to put us right into OTC one. And then after OTC, we would have to do the selection and assessment <laughs> and we would have to pass the selection and assessment. So we immediately started in OTC-1, but only two of, uh, of the five EOD folks, only two of us made it through OTC-1. Th then they were starting OTC-2 right after OTC-1, and there was five EOD folks in OTC-2, and only two of them made it through. So in the fall of 1978, we had to do selection and assessment, and we were still doing it in Uwari National Forest, North Carolina. So of the four of us that went through selection assessment, only three of us made it through. Dang. And then we had to go to jump school. So we kind of did everything backwards. And in the first OTC-1 and OTC-2, primarily it was composed of special forces, uh, MACV SOCs, veterans, uh, rangers, but Beckwith, his vision was 
MOS is immaterial. To have a counter-terrorist organization, you need people of different skills. Uh, you need somebody that can operate a bulldozer. If we need a bulldozer to be up, we need somebody to drive a tractor trailer. We need somebody to pretend that they're a chef, a cook. Uh, we need all kinds of people with different skills, not just Ranger Special Forces background. So he opened it up MOS wide to recruit. And, uh, and he wanted the EOD people to be operators, uh, and, but just have the EOD skill set. And he wanted six of us, but we only got three of us got through. So then what we did, we had some, um, back then, this is before the 18 series, it was the tw uh, Special Forces was 12 Bravo. So we had three 12 Bravo guys, Special Forces, they were E7s, um, and they volunteered to go to EOD school. But you couldn't go to EOD school as E7s because you had to be at E5 or lower to go to EOD school. So these three E7 Special Forces 12Bs, they just pinned on E5 stripes and uh, went to EOD school at Indian Head, Maryland at the time. And, um, and but made an agreement with the school that uh, they would not be awarded the MOS and that they would not be, because they're E7s, they would not be awarded the MOS, nor would they be awarded the EOD badge, because like I said, you have to be in an EOD unit 18 months to be a permanent award. But these three guys went through, so now we had six guys that were operators and with EOD background, and the 312B guys would be our support if we encountered an improvised explosive device. So that's that was the start. That is, um, that's just so the <laughs> you're right um so the, no i that's that to me okay so that is in my mind uh so tyree and i were both infantry when we were active duty and um so we hear stories all the time of operators and sf guys and uh, you know everybody doing all these crazy things and you hear all these like you never know if they're true or not just these these rumors that like oh they can do this and they can do that and that is kind of right up there with that kind of stuff like yeah, hey we're just gonna be e7s we're gonna have them pin on e5 they're gonna go to the school yeah, I don't know. It's like blending in with the regular army to to accomplish some task. But um, so before all of that, though, so you came in the army in 1968 and you went EOD. Uh, you you weren't you weren't a draftee, right? You you said I want. I, I was 17 years old. I was two weeks out of high school, right. and I volunteered to. So I was 17 when I went into the army, and um, and I talked to the army recruiter. And I wanted to go into explosive ordnance disposal EOD, but back then you could not enlist for EOD. You had to go in as some other MOS, and from that MOS you could volunteer for EOD. So the recruiter told me that if I went in as, and back then EOD was a 55 series, today it's an 89 series. Uh, back. So he told me it was 55 Delta. So if I went in the army as a 55 Charlie, which was 55 Charlie was ammunition renovation, the maintenance and renovation of ammunition. 
uh, fixing ammunition, uh, unserviceable ammunition to make it serviceable again. And he said that, and it was at Redstone Arsenal, Alabama. He says, from there, I can volunteer, uh, give me a good start on EOD with ammunition, and I can volunteer for EOD. And the reason you couldn't enlist for EOD is because of the high washout rate. Uh, so if you went to EOD school and you failed, uh, then the Army could, you already have an MOS, and the Army could immediately reassign you send you to, you know, Korea, Germany, Vietnam. So uh, I went to the 55 Charlie school and one of back then 55 Charlie's, one of their jobs was to dis, uh, dispose of code H ammunition. Code H ammunition is ammunition that's unserviceable and uneconomical to repair. So you destroy it by blowing it up. Today, EOD does that job, but back then 55 Charlies did it, and you'd go to the, but EOD, you were instructed how to destroy ammunition with EOD instructors at Redstone, and so then they asked for volunteers, and I volunteered for EOD. Uh, phase one of EOD was at that time was Fort McCollin, Alabama, where you learned about chemical and biological munitions. Then you go to phase two at Indian Head, Maryland, Naval Ordnance Station. Indian Head, Maryland was established as the EOD school in 1947 when Department of Defense was created. The, the proponent for EOD training is the Navy. Uh, so we have like, you know, proponent for airborne training is the Army mm -hmm. and so on like that. Navy diving's mouth for diving, but so Navy is the proponent for all, for the basic EOD training. Each service has more specialized training that service particular. Um, so Indian head, and then after Indian Head, I went to Tech Escort at Edgewood Arsenal. And so that was an interesting experience to be in Tech Escort. And I still hang, I still in contact with a lot of those guys from that time period in Tech Escort. And then from Tech Escort, I volunteered for Vietnam. That's my ultimate goal was to go to Vietnam. So I put in three requests to go to Vietnam and my commanding officer disapproved the first two. Finally, when I put in the th third request, he approved it. I guess he figured I was determined. Uh, so that's my ultimate goal was to go to Vietnam as an EOD person and to, and that's where I, I could learn my field, and I did. That one year in Vietnam was a tremendous learning experience. I was with the 99th Ordnance Detachment EOD at Phuc Vinh. We had, at the height of the Vietnam War, we had 13 EOD detachments. Now, today we have companies. Back then, we had detachments. Detachment only had 10 people in it. Uh, and, and we only had 13 in country. And how we divided Vietnam up is in areas. So the 99th, we supported 
the northwest corner of three core up to the Cambodian border. So whoever operated in our area, we supported. So we supported, and this is, uh, I went to Vietnam in February of 1970 and left in January of 71. And so we supported all of First Cav's operations in Vietnam out of Phuc Vinh. Phuc Vinh was the First Cav rear. And uh, we supported part of the 1st Infantry Division, AO, when they were there and they left in, during that time period. All of the uh, 11th ACR Armored Cavalry Regiment and all of the 199th Light Infantry Brigade. So any unit that operated in this area, uh, the 10 of us supported. Uh, of the 10, only nine of us were EOD. We had a clerk, uh, one officer. Uh, and an E-8. My E-8 was Master Sergeant Mike Land. He has since passed away. But basically, Mike Land was my mentor. Uh, I went on a lot of missions in Vietnam with him, and I learned so much from him. Um, one of the famous things that we did in Vietnam, well, May or June of 1970, we went into Cambodia during the incursion of May and, May and June of 1970. President Nixon authorized us officially to go into Cambodia for two months, Americans, and it was part of the Vietnamization program where we're turning the war over to the South Vietnamese. So by going into the sanctuary zones, zone, and we would give the South Vietnamese a good startup uh, when they would take, as they would gradually take over. So we went in there and we destroyed a lot of enemy caches, weapons and ammunition cache. I was involved in the large destruction of the largest enemy weapons and ammunition cache in the Vietnam War. It was a place called Rock Island East, named for the, rock, the arsenal Rock Island there in Illinois. Uh, and um, Rock Island East was a above ground site. It was a jungle trail with different cache sites on it um, and uh, weapons and everything. There was over 320 some tons of weapons and ammunition at Rock Island East. So there was eight of us that went in as EOD team. First Cav secured it, second of the 12th. And then we went in to set it up for destruction. And a lot of the weapons and different things were backhauled out of it. So we only destroyed 70, 70 some tons, 70, maybe 78 tons of ammunition. We uh, used 300 cases of C4. There's 40 pounds of C4 in a case. We used 12 cases of deck cord. There's three, there's, uh, three spools, 3,000 feet in the case. So we had 12 cases of deck cord because we had to reset all the, the explosives up on the, the different cache sites and we had to run detonating cord lines, dual detonating cord lines to that, all the cache sites. And we had to bury the detonating cord lines because as we would withdraw from this area, we knew that the enemy was going to want to recapture the, it. So finally, on the day of that we were going to blow it up, 
was a two-ship HLZ helicopter. So the two helicopters came in, and on the ground was a, uh, a squad from Echo Recon, second of the 12th, that was our security. And uh, there was just Mike Lamb and myself. We had 10 priming systems of 15 minutes each. And so any one of the 10 systems could set this thing off. And if they came in and they saw one of our detonating cord leads and they cut our detonating, we still had a second one that was buried going to it. And then we set around the perimeter of the HLZ different explosive charges to go off at different times to keep the enemy out because we knew that uh, they were wanting to take this thing back. So here's the confusion. So we light the 10, 15 minute systems. Mike Land and I, you know, go to the lead helicopter and they get, there's this infantry captain on the uh, radio and I don't know what's going on, but he hollers at us, cut the fuses, cut the fuses. So we run back out there with our crimpers and cutting time fuse. Go back to the helicopter. And then now he wants us to light it. We don't have, we don't have any more fuse igniters. We were using M60 fuse igniters. We don't have any more. So we, go, we got some C-ration matches, went over and split the time fuse, used the head of the match. And you know when you're real quick, you can light the one off the first one you just it spits back and light the second so we don't now we don't know what kind of time we have because we cut fuses we're splitting doing this now are the perimeter charges now are going off that we had around the the clearing the hlz so those charges are detonated well the helicopter people don't know anything about these scare charges and you can watch those helicopters and they're just jet bouncing. They're, they're wanting to get out of there. They think we'll probably get mortared. That's the only thing I can think of. So we like those things. We get in on the helicopter and then we can't lift off. We're, over, we're overloaded and we just can't lift. The door gunner taps me on the shoulder and tells me that I have to get back go to the helicopter in the back and he dumps off a couple other infantry guys and we're on the ground. So we're going back to the, and they dump off two people and then the helicopters just take off. And there's just me and a couple infantry guys on the ground with this thing. The perimeter charges are going off. The I'm gonna go and cut fuses. That's what I'm gonna do. Cause I don't wanna be here. And then another helicopter that was in orbit empty came down picked us up and we got out of there and i had a camera and i took pictures of black island east blowing up um we were we took ground air fire and uh and it was but it was beautiful um they could see our mushroom cloud 50 miles away uh at back in vietnam at at nui ba ra nui ba ra is the white virgin mountain uh, fire support base buttons at the base of it at Song Bay, 50 miles away that they could see our mushroom cloud from the detonation. So that was Rock Island East. And that was the largest. And then I was involved in the third largest, which was Warehouse Hill. Warehouse Hill was all underground. 
there's a ridge dug in with on both sides of the ridge and it had uh, you know they stored explosives and ammunition in warehouse ridge. so that was all underground and that was the third largest the city was the second largest but i wasn't at the city so i so, you, so there was a couple of things that was involved in Vietnam. You, you, so you made a couple of uh, a couple of uh, uh, big holes in the crowd. <laughs> yeah. Needless to say, uh, those, yeah, those craters must later, be huge. A month later, I flew over that area, Rock Island East, and you could just see the, all the dead vegetation, long vegetation and stuff like that. Yeah. So uh, I, I do got uh, so going back to so you joined you joined at seventeen with the intent to go to Vietnam. It took mm-hmm. you two years to get there. Three requests to go, and this is during the time when people are being drafted, and um, they're, they're uh, other guys back here in the states are burning their draft cards, running off to Canada so they don't go. And here you are at seventeen, being like, I I will go, I will go forward with this. And um, I think that there's a lot to be said about a person like that. Um, so I actually just spoke with, um, who was that? A, a woman the other day who was a, a, a Marine. She had joined in 1970. And, um, and I, I kind of had the same impression with her because, you know, women were never drafted. Um, and in 1970, her younger brother joined the Marine or you know, at her, her, 69, her brother joined the Marine Corps. And then in 70, she says, well, heck, I'm going to go too then. And as you know, there's something to be said about a person who is willing to, during that time, because uh, by 1968, Vietnam had been um, actively going on for, what, three years, right, officially. Um, and then and then you're just like, well, here I am. Let's let's go. Let's go do these things. Um, so that I think that says a lot to you uh, about the, the kind of character you were, even at 17 years old. Now you, go ahead. You know, I was just going to say, you know, 68 when I was in high school. It was, you know, senior in high school. It was Tet Offense took place. Mm-hmm. You know, you hear all the stuff on the news. You hear the pro- protesters and all this other kind of stuff. But I wanted to go to Vietnam to see for myself what it was, what we were doing, what it was all about. You know, all these other people hadn't been in country, set foot on the ground, protesting and stuff like that. And, you know, to be honest with you, I think that the, you know, the, the news didn't paint a very good picture of, of what was going on in Vietnam to the American public. And again, the government didn't do a very good job of explaining to the American public what was going on in Vietnam. The government did a poor job. Now, during the incursion, that was also what started the the shoot, you know, at Kent State. Remember uh, the incident at Kent State where the protest, they were protesting because we went into Vietnam. To American people, it appeared that we were escalating the war. And in fact, we were trying to de-escalate the war, you know. And, you know, when we went into Cambodia and hit the sanctuaries, uh, the city was, uh, you know, that was a medical place. That was classrooms, motor pool, uh, ammunition storage at the city. Uh, when we went in there, uh, I can tell you that probably six months, things were a lot quieter in Vietnam. We weren't getting rocketed as much, mortared. You know, things just calm, cooled down for a period of time. 
but then gradually it started picking back up again. But for a period of time, we weren't getting rocketed all the time. Um, and, you know, and like, you know, the TET, the TET of 68, you know, that, you know, that was a desperate Hail Mary by North Vietnam. They were after the Tet of 68, you know, they were on the ropes. The, for example, the Viet Cong regiments that were in the South basically came out of hiding and they were expecting the, the South Vietnamese that would, they would overthrow the government and join the revolution. That's what they were expecting. None of that happened. The Viet Cong regiments were destroyed literally destroyed in 68 they didn't exist as they did before now after 68 north vietnamese soldiers from moved down from the north and repopulated those Viet Cong regiments but they were actually made of north vietnamese soldiers um you know it it just was you know didn't do a very good job, and you know we had news people embedded with us at Rock Island East. We had there was news people there reporting on Rock Island East. If you Google Rock Island East, you'll see a lot of stuff on Rock Island East. Uh, Shakey's Hill. There was news people at Shakey's Hill in Campbell, but Warehouse Hill there was no news crew at warehouse hill mm -hmm. if you google warehouse hill you will not find it anywhere on the history of vietnam i have the, the report our report that we wrote up a destruction of warehouse hill but if there wasn't news people you never heard about it right and of course during the gulf war we decided that embedding news people wasn't you know, going to be good for us. So we did not have, you know, we kept news people out of the first Gulf War and to for to keep you know, operational security. Right. So I was going to say, so um, and you said like the, the, the media and the government did a pretty poor job at, at, at kind yeah. of detailing and explaining how things were going in Vietnam. I kind of feel like they did the same thing with Iraq and Afghanistan, except <laughs> we, you know, we had a little bit better welcome coming home because I think, you know, when I, when I came home for R&R, um, you know, the, the airport at DF, DFW was lined with all these patriotic Americans, a lot of Vietnam veterans who were, you know, giving us the welcome home that they should have received, that you guys should have received. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think there was a large part of that. Um, but still, like, you, you know, the, the way things were portrayed on, on, on media, um, the way the government talked about things, um, it was, I think it was both. Uh, both oversharing and then undersharing because I mean when you when you talk about OPSEC operational security I mean there's a there were a lot of details that that are released out on the news you know talking about you know because he and I were both first infantry division in Germany and um, you know it would be a big news thing on, on AFN or the regular news the big red one set to deploy in you know early 2004 and like why is that on the news you know, the, you know, the whole brigade is X amount of people, blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, on, on the one hand, I mean, it's hard for the conventional army to mobilize and deploy anywhere, um, secretively. Um, but on the other hand, like give us a, a bit of a break and, 
and stop telling everybody what's going on. Um, but that was that's I think that's always been kind of one of my things with the with media in general is just it, you know how they share information and the, the information they choose to share and the the you know there's always someone out there trying to paint the military um in a bad light um so that's yeah they they sensationalize certain things and stuff you know like the the Mylay massacre for example with uh the killing of innocents uh vietnamese and stuff you know that that gets that gets the press all the you know the bad stuff makes the press you know um but um yeah it was uh, yeah whether or not you know we should have been in vietnam or not uh, my opinion was uh, things went wrong following world war ii you know what happened in world war ii for example was uh, you know prior to that it was the french indochina during world war ii japan invaded french indochina for the resources for the all of the you know for the rubber for all the different resources that the indochina southeast asia offered the uh the japanese and so the Viet Minh formed against to, to, to against the Japanese, and now and we had OSS and we had the British had SOE members in Vietnam, French Indochina during World War. Ho Chi Minh was a, a OSS agent uh, during Vietnam. The Viet Minh wanted to kick out the Japanese. The Viet Minh wanted to uh, be independent, uh, not to be a French colony. They wanted their own country and stuff like that. After World War II, we, we gave in to France, the US and Brit did, and back, back to being a French colony again. Uh, they should have probably, we should have gave them their independence. Um, and that, that would have circumvented, probably changed the whole history of that, you know, and it just went from there, you know, Dan Ben Phu, and uh, then we got involved in, in Vietnam and uh, different thing. But, uh, you know, the way we left them high and dry, you know, when we pulled out in 70, took all the combat troops out in 73, eventually the fall in 75 you know they you know we did the same thing in afghanistan you know they they say, relied sounds, sounds they relied heavily on our support you know they just they just couldn't do it uh, on their own and then we we just dropped the funding and everything yeah and, but you know for some reason the soldier we had, here we had the draft and the soldier was the villain for the, the face of the Vietnam War. You know, you know, if you didn't like the war, you know, that's you need to vote. You need to vote. You need to run for office. You need to whatever. You know, we're we're just we're our country called and we're we're it says they need us and we we went to and we believed in our country 
uh, and what we were doing. And, uh, you know, uh, but if you don't like the what we're doing, you need to vote. Yeah, 100% agree. That's going on now. I have to ask, yeah. I definitely have to ask, uh, you pushed so hard to go to Vietnam. Um, what was it like to actually land in country finally? What was the feeling when you arrived? You're like, holy, I'm here now. I could, it was unbelievable. Uh, when I when we flew into Tonsonute Air Force Base, uh, we flew in on a Boeing a Trans Transcaribbean Airlines seven oh seven, and we flew in. So a commercial airline. We're flying over Saigon, you know, going into Tonsonute Air Force Base, and I look down and I it's at night. And I see all these lights, you know, I'm expecting something like World War II, people blackout conditions and stuff like that. Mm. And there's all the lights down below. And then when we land, the first thing I did is you could smell Vietnam. First thing you do is you smell the country. Uh, and then we went to uh, over there to the the what was it the replacement station the 70th replacement station uh there in, and uh, at long bend and uh so we're going this is in the middle of the night and we're going get into this like hangar like building and we're getting our in-country initial indoctrination into vietnam and all of a sudden there's this explosion Kaboom. And then there's another explosion. We're all sitting here, don't know what in the world's going on. And then somebody yelled, incoming. Uh, and we were taking rockets, uh, one, you know, 107 rockets, millimeter rockets. And so then we had to go right down into a bunker. Uh, and we had only been in Vietnam maybe an hour or two, and already we're taking incoming rockets. And I'm like, wow. Yeah, it was a 90th replacement. That was that's where we went to. What a and, what a what a welcome into Vietnam. <laughs> yeah. And but you know, lights are on. It's just just the it was just strange. Not what you expected at all. Um no. when we went to when we went to Iraq, so we had to go to Kuwait first for three weeks, and then we drove up from Kuwait into Samar, Iraq. And it, we were expecting IEDs or small arms, RPGs, anything along that convoy. I mean, it took us three or four days, but we were in Samara for probably, geez, two or three weeks before anything actually happened. Mm -hmm. um, no mortars, no rockets. We were out in sector and a tank ran over um, a, a landmine and blue track and, and some road wheel. And, uh, and that was our, that was our, like, I mean, that was a couple of weeks in. So we, at first we were like, wait a second, like all oh, I thought there was a war going on and it <laughs> turns out it's, uh, you know, it, it nice and quiet and the people would wave at us and the kids would wave at us and some of them would give us the finger, but we thought that they didn't know what that meant, you know, but, um, that's not a bunch of MREs up here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. this is, it's nice here. It's warm. It's nice. Yeah. It, you it's, got the finger. We would get this, you know, what is that? Number, number 10. Number 10 GI. What's number 10 GI mean? Uh, I don't think it's good. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, uh, it, it is interesting though. So number I, one is good. Number 10 is not good. Right. For sure. Um, we, uh, I remember talking to, when we came home, 
um, I spoke with my uncle who was in Vietnam in 68 and we were, t- you know, telling stories. He, he didn't really ever open up about it until, uh, not to me anyway, um, a little bit to my dad. But um, after I came back from Iraq, he, he talked to me a bit about his experiences over there. And we talked about my experience in Iraq and he, you know, he was telling me things to expect in, in, in regards to PTSD and, you know, the after effects of combat and um, or sustained combat. And um, after all the joking and everything, or after all, all the storytelling and everything, he said to me, um, I sure am glad that I went uh, where I went, not where you went. And I kind of looked at him crazy. I was like, how, how, how does that make sense? Like we had body armor and technology and all this and that. And he's like, yeah, but I had beard and weed. <laughs> I was like, what? I mean, I guess, you know, if it's bad, numb, numb it and then it'd be fine. But um, no, it's definitely. I think, Go ahead. I think Vietnam veterans are, as you, you said, are opening up a lot more about their experience to the GWAT veterans sharing i think there's more share sharing because we can identify you know a lot of similarities with what you guys went through we saw that too you know what was the what did we really do what was the game uh where is where it is now of course vietnam uh once it uh fell and stuff like that uh you know Vietnam's doing all right. Um, we're buying, you know, we buy our tents. Uh, usually they're made in Vietnam. Camping gear made in Vietnam. Backpacks made in Vietnam. Jackets. You know, uh, Vietnam's, you know, still a communist country. Uh, they've kind of embraced, embraced capitalism to some scale. Um, but uh you know, uh, I I I know a guy who he's he's a who was born in Vietnam, and uh, he was a refugee, and uh, he goes back all the time. He was uh, he's big with Coca Cola. He was one of the head guys in Vietnam with Coca Cola today. Yeah, after the fall, um, but it's you know the people are generally nice. Uh, you know, it's it 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 came up. You know, it it worked out in the long run. In, a, in oh. the long run, it worked out. You know, I've often wondered it, if it's if it's going to work out for where we went in Iraq and Afghanistan. Because I mean, as it is now, I mean, you you can go back to Vietnam and 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 it's fine. Like I don't know yeah. with how things are in the Middle East. I don't know if that's ever going to be a thing um, for us. Um, because we did experience, I mean, there, I mean, all, all war aside, there were really nice people there who genuinely wanted to just live their lives in peace and be happy. And they were accepting of us there, even though, you know, you know, to, in their eyes, we were technically the invaders. And it's like you said, like, you can't help but be that grunt on the ground and wonder, like, am I doing any good here? Would this have happened if I wasn't here? Um, so, I mean, I think those are the pretty standard thoughts though, especially when, you know, you're just a small cog in the wheel. Yeah, um, Vietnam was a beautiful country, uh, and people are just you know I, I love the food, uh, and back then I drank beer and I drank Vietnamese beer, bomb de bomb, thirty three beer, uh, which has formaldehyde in it for preservative, mm. uh, just... but but yeah, and uh, Nuke mom fish sauce i love fish sauce um 
but uh, you know, yeah, you don't. Right now in Afghanistan, you've got, of course, the Taliban's in ruling, but you've got the Afghan ISIS group, and those two are killing each other. I believe that you know it might take a while; things will be stabilized. Uh, it just—it's got to be. You know, it can't be that chaotic forever. You, you know? would think, yeah, you would think, yeah. And it's just, you know, it's a shame that, uh, you know, people just extremism is just of any sort, whether right, left, or what. Extremism is just no good. Uh, yeah, and, uh, about uh, going back to revisit Iraq in twenty. 35 for a reunion for one two six. You, yeah, you want to you would like to? No, I'll take that one. No, you pass. Yeah. Yeah. I would go. I would go, I, I would go for sure. Vietnam. Yeah, you would. Have you have you ever been back since then? No, I and 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 I would go. And I have this friend, like I just told you, he said if I ever want to go back, he goes back all the time. And he'd be a great guide. He's you know, speaks the language and no, he really knows. It, he's helping us out on um, on Sante, for example. There's um, a friend of mine's writing a new book for Osprey Press on the Sante raid, and uh, there's still questions about the on the Sante raid. Uh, some things that don't make any sense, you know. One of them is that there was a schoolhouse nearby, and they supposedly 300, whether they be Russian or Chinese, assaulted the Sante Raiders. I do know how well you know the anything about the Sante Raid. Now, in Delta, we had two two members of Delta were were Sante Raiders when I went to Delta, and that was Dick Meadows, who is pretty famous, and Dick Meadows was involved in the I. Uh, uh, American hostage rescue in Iran. He was leading the team that went in to prepare Tehran for our reception, you know, with the vehicles and the hide site and everything. So Dick Meadows. The other guy was uh, Sergeant Major Jack Joplin, who was our unit medic. Um, and these were two Sante Raiders. And the reason Delta was created was because because of Sante, it took a while for us to, the Sante Raiders to get put together, to train up and to put a whole thing into operation to launch the Sante mission. Um, our first unclassified mission in Delta was POW rescue. We had to have a stand-up force that could go wherever Americans were held hostage, POW or whatever, to have a stand-up force that could deploy within hours to rescue the Americans. And that was, Sante was part of the emphasis for Delta. Also, of course, the hijackings that were taking place in the 1970s, aircraft hijackings. But Sante, you know, these 300 people from the schoolhouse that, that, that assaulted the Sante Raiders, it's like, you read that they were either Russian or Chinese. Now, what were they, Russian or Chinese? You can tell the difference between Russian and Chinese. And if you're on the ground and you're 
you, you know, there's bodies and stuff like that. You're going to take intelligent stuff off the bodies um, and stuff. So he's trying to determine whether this was a mixed group. Were they all Russian, 300, or were they all, come, you know, Chinese? The other thing is, why wasn't the POWs there at the Sante? You know, they had been moved. Why did they get moved? Well, if you read one thing, why they got moved is because of the monsoons. The prison was flooded from the monsoons. Monsoons happen every year. Um, and this friend of mine believes he knows the answers to all these questions. And we're going to be looking into it. And he's going to be looking into it more. But there was, and one was that maybe there was a leak. Well, the Russians had radar and were giving information to the North Vietnamese about American reconnaissance flights. So there was an uptick before the raid, there was an uptick of SR-71s and U-2 flights over the Sante area. The Russians were telling the North Vietnamese hey, there, there's more increased surveillance traffic going on here. Well, this is, I just learned this. 10, 10 kilometers from Sante, the North Vietnamese were digging a, a underground bunker complex for the Politburo, Ho Chi Minh, and, every, and all of those. So ten, so they were making this. The Russians were the contractors for this bunker, and it was called K nine, the K nine complex. And so, what they were worried about is the surveillance aircraft that are going over the prison might accidentally pick up the construction of the secret underground bunk, command and control bunker that they were digging. So they moved, this is the latest thing, they moved the prisoners to keep this project secret. Ho Chi Minh died in, at NK9 complex. He, that's where he passed away. So there's a lot, you know, there's, there's a lot yet to be learned from history and and the thing is now with the way we are with the North Vietnamese or the Vietnamese in general, um, we could you know, find more about what they were doing, how they were viewing, the, the Vietnamese were viewing this whole thing. And so I think it's gonna be pretty good. Yeah, it sounds it's like there's a lot of answers that um, that need to be answered. You know, a lot of yeah. questions, yeah, that's a, when you think you know everything, you find out you really don't know everything. Right. That and yeah, and that's kind of how that t tends to go. What's up, Tyree? You are a part of several events in history. Several events. <laughs> like the majority of the events at a certain time period. What is it like to be able to reflect on something like that like personally i love history and i can read about roman times and how you know caesar did this and you know they did this but i can read about things that you've done but you can read about things you've done is it always accurate uh 
I would say pretty much accurate. Um, things that maybe the spin, like, like as I say, we talk about Grenada. Was Grenada considered a success or was it considered a failure? It's depending on how you look at Grenada. Uh, the perception was Grenada that was given to the people. Grenada was a complete success, you know. Uh, we rescued the medical students. Uh, well, first of all, I'll go back to the Iran hostage rescue mission and the Holloway Commission to investigate the failures of the Iran hostage rescue mission. Out of the Holloway Commission, they, they just said that there should be a joint task force set up to plan these kind of missions where it involves the Air Force, the Navy, and all the joint services stuff. So Joint Special Operations Command was set up, JSOC was set up at following the Iran hostage rescue mission. So we would not have a repeat it more interoperability, communications with each other, improve all that stuff. Well, out of Grenada Operation Urgent Fury, USOCOM was established because of the failures that took place on the ground in Grenada that a lot maybe the public is not all aware of. First of all, the medical students were never in harm's way in Grenada. They were not under house arrest, nothing. The medical students, the American medical students and the medical university in Grenada, this is a cash cow. This is they, this is money, and uh, they would not have done anything to disrupt that. The medical students were fine. What happened is they had a, you know, had a coup. In comes a Marx, Marxist government, supported by Cuba, and Cuba was then going to be going to the Salinas Airfield. They were in, improving the airfield there at the Salinas airfield, and they were setting up hangars that could house MEG aircraft. So our mission, Delta's mission, B Squadron's mission, the mission I was on, was Richmond Hill Prison. Our mission was to rescue the political prisoners that were held in prison to reestablish re a democratic elected government. If if the medical students were in any danger or harm, then our primary mission would have been to rescue the medical students. That was a follow-on thing with the, the Rangers did that. And even when they rescued a bunch of medical students, they found out they didn't have them all. They were different places and stuff like that. So our job was to go in there and to rescue the political prisoners at Richmond Hill Prison. So we were supposed to fly in over at first light. Now, this is the first operation with Black Hawk, combat operation with Black Hawk helicopters. And we had, I guess there's, there was 10 helicopters in this formation. So Delta was in six helicopters. I was in helicopter five and Helicopter seven and eight and nine and 10 were two SEAL helicopters, SEAL Team Six helicopters. 
their their mission was the the radio station Grenada radio station to capture that so that they could not communicate with the people and then we would own the radio station and then the uh, the gov the British governor general's uh, residence his name was Schoons and he was basically under house arrest in his residence and that was to rescue governor British governor general so um, so we were supposed to go in before first light. I'll see if I can stabilize this. We're supposed to go in before first light and we were delayed. The reason I think we were delayed is because of, um, I'm, uh, good, is the Marines were landing, the Marines were landing doing an amphibious assault to recapture the Pearl airfield the Marines do not do nighttime amphibious assaults. So they didn't want us, if we went in before first light, just before first light, then they we figured we would spoil the surprise for the Marine landing amphibious assault. So we were delayed going in. So when we went in, we had, and well, I'm trying to get, get this. So as we went in, there was a, there was another ridge that overlooked Richmond Hill Prison, and that was Fort Frederick. The Cubans had set up anti-aircraft guns on Fort Frederick. They had 20 ZSU 23s. Uh, they had 12.51 cal, 12.7s. They had all this in a ridge that overlooked the prison. So when we flew in, our six helicopters flew into the, the prison, and my helicopter, we were gonna land fast rope. This is the first time that we were using fast ropes in combat. We were gonna fast rope outside the prison and, uh, and there was a guard barracks and we were going to go and you know, contain the guard, the guard barracks so that they would not reinforce the prison. And then other people were gonna land in the prison. But when we went in, we just took fire. I mean, the, the fire was intense, 23 millimeter, 12.7, 7.62. Not only they were shooting at us from up on the ridge, you know, up on that Fort Frederick, they were shooting at us from below. Bullets were going through the, the helicopters and uh, the floor of the helicopters. The door gunner uh, got immediately shot. This was Task Force 160, the 160th Special Operation Aviation Regiment. And it's the first joint use of them with us in combat. And um, so it was just intense. And then we pulled, we pulled off. Now, helicopter four in front of me was, was shot down. The pilot was mortally wounded and they crashed. Then we circled back around, did a big circle, and we went in for the second time. And again, it was intense. The, the fire was really intense. And then we pulled off. Well, uh, I don't want to interrupt you, but I, I, remember, you, I listened to a different show where you, talk, you compared that to something from the Crimean War. Yeah, the Charge of the Light Brigade. Yeah. Uh, 11th Lancers of the charge in Crimea 
during 1853 when they charged the Russian, the Russian and Turkish gun positions. They had guns in front of them. There was two hilltops. They had guns left. And they got the order, the Lancers, the Lancers got the, their orders got mixed up. They, I guess they were supposed to do a flanking maneuver, but anyway, they charged right through the Turkish and Russian thing. And it was just, if you read about the charge of the light brigade, they just went in and they charged right through the gun positions. And then after they charged them, they turned around and they went back through the gun positions. Uh, I mean, there was a French off general, I believe, that was a, with the Brits as an observer. And, he's, and his comment was, he said, that was magnificent, but that's not warfare. That's, what, that's the quote from the French general. Uh, and we went through the second time. We had no AC-130 gun support. We had no jets, fast movers and stuff. And I talked to, later on, I talked to a, um, the guy with AC, a crew member of the AC-130 that was supposed to be, and they were actually on orbit when we were supposed to be there. And so they were orbiting, and then they had to pull off to get refueled. And that's why we had no AC-130 gun support. We had no... That is ridiculous well that is ridiculous that because because we they delayed us for uh, supposedly for the marines now the other thing is we were over the water and we were listening to the grenadian radio station and we we're still over the water and they said the invasion of grenada has begun so, you know, citizens, grab your rifles, go to the beaches and meet, meet the Americans on the beach. They knew we were coming. So when we got over the beach area, people were down there on the beach waving and everything. And you could hear pop, pop, you know, somebody was shooting. Uh, but I was, I have been told unofficially that it was intentionally leaked that we were invading Grenada by the State Department of State or somebody to the Cuban embassy in Mexico that the Cubans on the island, when we invaded, that the Cubans should not resist the invasion. Now, I don't know who, uh, the, 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 the Cubans that were on Grenada course for quote engineers but that you can you can compare them to combat engineers they had previously served in angola so these were veteran war fighters but they were engineers too combat engineers they knew how to man zsu 23s and shoot zsu 23s um this is, I wish, I've always wanted to make, confirm this, but this is something I was told and I'm not, I believe it might be true. So when we landed, when we landed in Grenada, our five aircraft now, only one of them was flyable. So my team and another team got on the aircraft, we went to the crash site, secured the crash site with our, 
comrades that were injured and stuff like that. And the medevac helicopter came off one of the ships off coast and uh, medevaced our guys to the ship. Um, we had 17 of our guys were wounded. Uh, we had no fatalities. And the reason, one of the reasons we had no fatalities is because they got immediate care from the sh Navy ships that were off the coast. Uh, I know, you know, someone was shot in the stomach, like uh, Jerry Boykin, who later became Lieutenant General Boykin. He was, I believe, a captain at this time. He had a SATCOM radio strapped to his back. And he took a 23 millimeter round in the SATCOM radio and uh, he, and and he lost you know, a little bit of his shoulder muscle tissue, but took a 23 millimeter round. Uh, I would imagine that feels like, I don't know, a bulldozer slamming into your back at full speed. Yeah. Like, that's got to feel insane. Yeah. Uh, While you're doing so, everything you're doing. And that, so we were going to do a ground assault. Now we, we don't have any helicopters and the Rangers are jumping in. I actually took two pictures of the Rangers jumping in uh, to Point Salinas. I think I'm the only one that took pictures. I have the only one in Delta that had a camera with me. Uh, and I only one took, so I have pictures of the Rangers jumping in. All this stuff going on, all this fire, everything, chaos, and you're out there taking pictures. Um, I, you know, and if that doesn't really kind of... <laughs> detail the kind of person that it takes to be in delta i mean the, the 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 level of calm that you have to sustain during some stuff like that to be you know you said you took you know there was some photography lessons in in the otc but i mean still just to be like you know what there's rangers falling from the sky right now i'm gonna take a picture um yeah one of my ammo pouches i had a voice kept camera in one of my ammo pouches uh so I took pictures of group pictures there. Uh, if you've seen some of that on the internet, but I took took those. And um, yeah, so we're going to do a ground assault on the prison. But then we were informed that after we left, they opened up the prison and let everybody out. So that was that was Grenada. But out of Grenada, U.S. SOCOM was formed. To, again, there was problems communicating with all the different groups and stuff, like, you know, the gunship not being on station when we were on station, um, communicating, you know, the, the SEALs were having problems communicating. Uh, they, I think they left a SATCOM radio when they, at the Governor General's house, they left their SATCOM radio on the aircraft. And so then they were using... Uh, uh, a phone, regular phone to communicate to everybody else. And uh, we, we maps, maps, we had tourist maps of Grenada. We didn't have, there wasn't, it we didn't have regular maps. And then there was on one set of maps, there was a grid pattern. So it, you, you would be able to call if you needed to call in fire support and stuff like that. Come to find out that there was, two separate editions of this grid map, which were different. And so that could have been some of the confusion with a lot of friendly fire casualties that took place. Uh, there, there was, we had a high, there was a, for a small operation Grenada was, we had a lot of uh, 
friendly fire casualties. There, there was a, a hospital that of Grenadians, I guess, mental dis, disability hospital that was accidentally bombed. Hmm. Uh, and things like that. Uh, but anyway, we the thing is we keep learning, and USOCOM became what it is today out of out of Grenada, and then of course we after Grenada, uh, we had Desert Storm. Uh, you know, there's pictures out there of Desert Storm during De the Gulf War and Desert Storm that claims that I was one of the security people for Schwarzkopf. I don't, and I'm trying to get that corrected but you know when things go out on the internet that's the way it is that was actually a friend of mine that kind of looked he, bill cronin he, he dark hair he wears glasses um he's he was delta um so we did some of our guys we had four guys that were part of schwarzkopf security detail but i was not one of there's even this book uh, just came out now too called Warfighter mm -hmm. by mm -hmm. Colonel Jesse uh, Johnson. He, he was a member of the unit, but um, in there he, he says I was part of I was Schwarzkopf's on Schwarzkopf security detail. So he's, he's he claims that I was you know he said I was EOD and all this other stuff. What he said is true. But I was not part of Schwarzkopf's security detail. I was involved in another project during the Gulf War, and that was the destruction of the command and control facility known as Taji Number no. Two. Taji Number no. Two was the Iraqi big Iraqi command and control facility. It was a cut and cover facility. They dug a big, huge hole in the ground. They built a two-story structure. And then they covered it back up with dirt. Then they put a concrete bomb burster slab on top of the structure and covered that up with dirt. And that was Taji number two. Now, during Desert Storm, the Air Force attempted to destroy the Taji number two by dropping, they dropped 60 blue 109s onto this facility and didn't do no damage to the facility. Six, now the blue 109s are a 2,000 pound bomb, but they're a special bomb. These were so-called bunker buster bombs and they were made of hardened steel. And um, this, this was what we would take out. But in reality, Taji number two probably would have been a nuclear, tactical nuclear target, such as a B-61 bomb. So the Air Force, developed the B-61 nuclear bombs to take out such hardened underground structures, uh, but we're not gonna use a B-61. Uh, and so the Air Force never developed, other than the blue 109s, a bunker buster bomb. So our job was to take, take the bunker out and to go in, reach the doors, and then it'd be a ranger assault. It was gonna be a ranger battalion assault on the thing. Myself and another Delta breacher would work with the rangers and we would, he would breach one bomb blast door, I'd breach another one. 
once we breached the doors, let the rangers take over itself the bunker, and then we would bring in explosives and blow blow the, the facility up. So I had to brief General Steiner, General Carl Steiner, US SOCOM commander, on the plan to take out Taji number two. So I started my briefing out to General Steiner. I says, we roll back time. Today is now 1945. 1945, we could take that bunker out, 1945. But here, you, 1991, we cannot take the bunker out with conventional munitions. It's because we went, everything went nuclear instead of conventional. I says, in 1945, we had several options. You know, we had the, the, the two British bombs, the 12,000 pound tall boy, 22,000 pound grand slam bombs. Those were both during World War II dropped by the British Lancaster bombs. But these two bombs, the tall boy and the grand slam, were actually manufactured and forged here in the United States. Britain didn't have the facilities to make these large 12,000, 22,000 bombs. So we, we, we made them here, the bomb casings. They were sent to England or by ship. Then they were filled up and then they were dropped on submarine pens, aqueducts, uh, dams, different other hardened structures like you know, the 20, that the Grand Slam bomb, the 22,000 bomb, took out a submarine pen, went through 10 meters of reinforced concrete, 10 meters of reinforced concrete, and took out a submarine pen. And then also at the end of the war, we developed the T 12 bomb, the Super Cloud Buster bomb, which was a 43,000 pound bomb. Uh, and that was to be dropped by a B 36. We did drop some of these, uh, a modified B-29 before the B-36 came out. We test dropped some of these by B-29. And so it was a 43,000 pound bomb. There are three of them still in existence. Um, one of them is at the Armament Museum at uh, Eglin Air Force Base. It's in front of the museum laying on the ground. One of them at that time was at the Aberdeen Proving Grounds in the middle of a traffic circle standing on its end. And now that bomb is at Fort Lee. And the third bomb is at Pueblo Chemical Army Depot here in Colorado. So there's three bomb casings, three T12 bomb casings. I says we could take a couple of those from the museum, fill them up with explosives and and, and drop them. So that's how I started my briefing to General Steiner. Um, and then I briefed him the whole plan. But on the last day of the war, Taji number two was actually disabled. It wasn't completely destroyed, but it was disabled. What happened was there was a officer in upstate New York at some depot in New York where they have all these eight inch gun barrels. And this officer was looking at these gun barrels, these eight inch gun barrels just lying around uh, and said, boy, they would make a good bomb. You know, all you have to do is, you know, put some fins on it, put a guidance system on it. And we could turn one of these eight inch gun barrels into a bomb. And that's exactly what happened. And the bomb was called a GBU-28B. Ground, it was a guided bomb unit 28B. 
The reason it was called the GBU-28 is because it took 28 days to make a bomb, which is unheard of to, 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 to develop this bomb. So we had two, we dropped one in Eglin, test dropped one at Eglin, Florida. Then we had two GBU-28s. Now GBU-28 is 4,700 pounds. So we put one of these on, on each wing of an F-111. And then we put a couple 2,000, regular 2,000 pound bombs on the other wing. And they flew from England to Iraq. And then uh, they, and the first plane dropped its first GBU-28 and it missed the target. Second plane came around and it went in top dead center and went, penetrated the bunker and blew up. I later talked to a Marine Lieutenant Colonel intelligence officer who went into Taji number two. And, you know, we believed it pr probably totally destroyed it. And it didn't, it wasn't completely totally destroyed. But now we have the, um, the mop bomb. I don't know if you are familiar with the mop. The mop is the massive ordnance penetrator bomb. So it's, it's big. Um, I think it's a GBU. And I'm not, this is out of the top of my head. GBU-57 mop, uh, but we have not used one of these in combat yet, but we do have a big, huge penetrative bomb. The GBU-28B's got the nickname as Sodomizer. That's the nickname for GBU-28. Um, so that was what I was involved in. And then once on the last day of the war, Taji number two was taken out by GBU-28. So then I went in to support our operations in, you know, going into Iraq, doing the scud hunting missions. The Brits were doing scud hunting and we were doing scud hunting missions. So, and I have another fact that will surprise a bunch of people. And there'll be a book coming out on this too. No, no Scud missiles or missile launchers were destroyed by coalition forces during the Gulf War. Contrary to what you read here, my unit, though claimed the destruction of a GBU, I mean, claimed the destruction of a Scud missile and missile launcher, um, it was actually a rolling missile. I talked to a guy who was involved in going into the into Iraq following the Gulf War as part of the inspection team to you know the destruction of all WMDs in Iraq, and his job was to count for all Scud missiles and missile launchers in Iraq to ensure that they are all destroyed. And, uh, and so his job was to account for everything. And in accounting for everything, um, we did, nobody, the coalition forces. So we, you know, that one that we claimed that was a Scud was a Roland. Uh, another one was actually a Scud decoy that was destroyed. And um, so that's, that's it, uh, we didn't destroy, but we hampered, by our hunting teams in there, hampered the ability for them to successfully uh, carry out launching, you know, because they had to hide their launchers and stuff because we were trying to seek out 
and find so we did we acted as a deterrent so in that part was success uh so that's I remember, that, I remember hearing about all that stuff when i was i was young like uh, when when this all happened i was nine but i still paid attention so uh -huh. i heard about scud anything i'm like oh my god it's so terrifying and you, you were there yeah dealing with them he, the guy could this guy who's the marine the same marine that i was talking about that inspected the taji number two is the same person that's going to be writing this book out it's not out yet i've reviewed some of his chapters for to make sure that uh for accuracy and um so it, it it's going to be good uh, book. So, and I do get a lot of author requests. You know, I get like documentaries, like the, the Sante one. There's going to be a new, I mentioned that there's going to be a new documentary on Sante. It's called 27 Minutes at Sante. It's still in the works yet. So, and then this book on Sante from Osprey Press. So I, I do get contacted by different authors and people, and I have a lot of contacts in the special operations community, so I can connect people to the right people. Um, I wanted to say, so <clears throat> a career spanning three decades from Vietnam to, to 1999, you co you've covered a lot of ground and did a, a whole ton of stuff. Um, so in, in, early, in the early Delta years, right, from... It's, it's it's founding in uh, late 77, early 78, and the first operation in, in, in 1980 with the uh, Operation Eagle Claw, which we haven't talked about yet, going into um, Operation Urgent Fury, Uphold Democracy, the, um, the Atlanta, um, Atlanta uh, uh, prison Operate, riots. Yeah. yeah, Operation Pocket Planner, the Atlanta prison uh, takeover. Right. Um, and then going into uh, the Gulf War, Mogadishu, um, and any other, like other operations that may have happened or whatever. So those are the main ones that we, that we, that, you know, the general public probably knows about. Um, and, it, and, and so when you, I've, like I said before, in one of the emails we exchanged, I've listened to quite a bit of uh, different shows that you've been on. And one thing that uh, there was one show, the way he asked the question, I was, I was actually kind of really uh, upset with, right? Because he made it seem as though every early mission that Delta was a part of was this like massive failure. And that is that to me, that is like that, that didn't make sense to me. Right. Because one, for one reason, Delta force was in its founding. Right. And everyone there's, there's a learning curve with everything. And, and, um, and I'm sure, you know, not all of the details um, you, you know, you really go into So there's, 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 probably other things that happen that you really don't talk too, too much about. But even if a mission sets off and it's the first of its kind and you, you, you get the boots on ground and, and the, it starts to kick off, but then all the problems start to arise. And then you come back afterwards and you have the AAR and you figure out your improves and your sustains. And you're like, okay, we need better air assets. Okay. So now let's create the one sixtieth. We need right. better communication amongst the, the, all the, the units operating. Okay. Let's set up JSOC and us SOCOM. Yeah, um, JCU joint communications unit. Right. And so in doing all these early missions where, okay, like you, like you, you kind of at, uh, mentioned talking about Grenada, um, you know, is it a, is it, is it a, a, a success or is it a failure? Well, 
the 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 college students were not in any harm as you said um the political um prisoners were released so i'm sure y'all weren't able to snatch those guys up uh, like you wanted to um 17 wounded helicopter goes down so it sounds like when you when you read about it at face value oh it was a big failure we didn't get anything done the seals are supposed to control the radios uh radio word got out anyway but you know you guys like the whole operation and you have marines navy uh army all working together in one massive Mm -hmm. operation and it hasn't really been done before so obviously there's going to be complications obviously there's going to be problems and you guys were able to solve it and 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 create, you know, the special operations community and the joint service operation community that we have today. Like mm-hmm. you were like literally the guinea pig for all of this stuff. Well, special operation units that are created during wartime are usually dismantled upon the ending of that war. In the past, it's always been that way. And v- after Vietnam ended, the first thing that you know, Congress would do is to reduce the funding that goes to the Department of Defense and everything. And the first thing, one of the things they get rid of is special operations. And that's that happened after uh vietnam for example it has happened if you look in history and all the other wars specialized units are everything goes back to conventional again you know the the you know the ships and the tanks and the artillery and uh, now but so basically the, with the budget cuts and just downsizing of the military after Vietnam, special operations took a big hit, you know. Um, but there's, there was a lot of good stuff. Some of the missions I, I did a lot of um, security evaluations. Uh, and I went to Sudan first after I got to the unit. I, we were invited by the, the vice president of Sudan who came to the United States, wanted a security assessment the president of Sudan. So I was part of a team, there's two of us from Delta that went into a part of a team that went to Sudan to evaluate the security of the president of Sudan. And then I looked at the setting up a VIP EOD unit in the Sudanese army. They were British trained EOD folks, Sudanese EOD folks, setting up a VIP unit to support the the president of Sudan for searches and stuff like that. And so I worked with them. I went on at the time in Sudan, and this is in the early 1980, 81. At the time in Sudan, there was, uh, they had a lot of terrorist bombing in Sudan. It was from a Chad group that was setting bombs off. And there were quite sophisticated bombs that they were setting off. They were using electronic timers, you know, using IC, you know, Five 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 timers, IC chip type integrated circuit timers, uh, and I went on some things with them. We went we went intercepted two suitcases um, full, and they went into this little room, and they went click click, and they opened these two suitcases up, and they were full of Sentex H explosives, and 
I'm looking at that. I'm saying, telling them, I says, you do very many of these interceptions like this. And the next time you go click, click and open that suitcase up, it's going to go. So I, I then later went in and trained the Sudanese how to brought in x-ray equipment, trained them how to uh, do that. And then once they knew my background, they had me going to all the different ammunition depots that they had there. They had a, they made their own nine millimeter, 12 millimeter uh, shotgun ammunition. I looked at their plant and their storage and made, you know, security recommendations and stuff like that. And so President of Sudan, then I later did the, uh, went into Saudi Arabia in probably in 1984, before the Gulf War. And I were part of a team that evaluated the security of His Royal Highness Prince Adula, who later became the king. Uh, but at the time he was the prince and he was the commander in chief of Saudi Arabia National Guard, the Sang. So I looked at his, we evaluated his, his security motorcade, he had like five mansions that he lived in. Um, I looked at three of them. I didn't look at the one at Mecca and Medina because you have to be a Muslim. Mm -hmm. uh, but I looked at his other stuff. And so I made a security, <clears throat> I made up a table of organization using dogs and everything to set up a VIP security for him. So I did a lot of the security assessments did a lot of valuations, you know, like Korea and Ecuador. Um, I did a hijacking. What year was that hijacking uh, in Honduras? There was a Honduran aircraft that was hijacked with Americans on board. I think 14 Americans. 1982? And, huh? In, in 1982? Yeah, it was 1982. So I went down there. And uh, it was on the advanced party. Now that's in Eric Haney's book, but that part of his book is totally wrong. And I wrote Eric and told him, Eric didn't come down there until later. I was on the advanced party. So he had a lot of things wrong in his book on that. And I wrote him after the book came out. But, uh, yeah. Eric and I were on the same team during Iran hostage rescue mission. We were on the same four man team. Yeah, I, I'd heard that um, that there were uh, some discrepancies in his in his book, and and there was controversy around that. I, I wasn't, you know, I mean, I, I don't know right from wrong, but um, uh, it is still interesting to read some of these stories because I'm sure that, you know things are still kind of somewhat based in truth. And then, but you know, that's neither here nor there. Um, that's uh, that's that's for for you guys in in the unit to to you know deal with. Well, uh, the best part of Eric's book, and I and I tell it people that he, his description of selection assessment, he's got one of the best descriptions of selection and assessment. He describes it pretty well for that time period when we were doing it in Uori. Now, after 1978, starting in 1979, we moved to West Virginia. So currently today, selection assessment is done in west virginia no, i didn't actually know i thought i for some reason i was thinking that uh there was there was just you know the one sfas and that was kind of uh well i mean i, I get you know so I, I in 2009 i i got mobilized to fort sill to do drill sergeant duties 
And before we were able to go on the trail and, and do our jobs, we had um, we had to take this course, um, CAT C, uh, combined, com- combined Arm Training Course, I believe it's called. And it was instructed by three former uh, Delta guys. Um, never got their last names. Man guy, whose name was Chris. Uh, one of them was a sniper. All super nice dudes and um, very, very knowledgeable. And um, and we, you know, and me being a former infantry guy, you know, just was a sponge the entire time we were there. So it was a week long course, and it was basically what had what what had started th- this whole thing with them is that the army started to look at like how we were training troops and um, and can we make it better? And so they looked to you guys and they said, "You guys have been doing amazing things with how you train troops. Can you take a look at our training doctrine and see what's wrong with it?" And so these three men. They were looking at it like, why are you still teaching things, you know, in A, B, C order when if C is the issue, go straight to C. And so the way they were teaching that to us is through rifle, uh, uh, rifle marksmanship. And so we were doing barrier shoots and uh, walk back and shoots every 50 meters while standing um, from the low ready, pop down to the prone and, and hit your target from 300 meters. Things that we had, you know, the conventional force we didn't do. Right. Um, yeah. It just wasn't a thing. Well, you know, of course, you know, Beckwith was work spent time with the two two SAS, the British SAS, and so and so our selection and assessment course is based on the British two two SAS course that's done in Beacon's Beacon Hills in Wales. So we copied the British SAS. They also we brought British SAS instructors in to the first in OTC one to teach us shooting. So we were taught the different uh, we taught from the British SAS and we copied a lot of our stuff from the British. And we have the best and closest relationship with the British SAS. I did a lot of work with the British SAS. I even spent time with the New Zealand SAS. Uh, the British SAS, uh, I did a lot of climbing with them because climbing is my passion and I did that on the side. I rock climbed and mountain climbed and I taught climbing in the unit and guided mountain rock climbing trips and guided uh, mountain climbing trips. So I climbed um, Denali in Alaska uh, the first time in 1990 with nine members of the British SAS. I was the only American, but they invited me to climb Denali with them. All 10 of us made it to the top at the same time. Um, Denali had a great time. I uh, did a lot of stuff with British SAS. So we copied them. And I got to give credit where credit's due. You know, and of course, you know, some of the shooting you're talking about, you know, we do what called man versus man, you know, where you've got your steel t- targets and stuff like that. And you're, you're shooting against another person, you know, and that's how you can improve and you're doing reload drills, you know, only putting two rounds or unknown rounds. If somebody puts, you know, a couple rounds in your rifle or whatever, then you've got to do reloads and you have malfunction and then the instructor calls malfunction and you've got, you know, you've got to clear your malfunction and, um, and doing that kind of stuff. One of the things that we sh- was taught was instinctive shooting, shooting mm-hmm. instinctively versus using sights, especially close quarter combat. Our first assault rifles 
were M3 grease guns. Okay. I don't know if you know the, the tanker M3 grease gun. It's an open oh. bolt uh, thing. It looks just like of the old-fashioned grease gun. And um, so that was our first assault weapons. And it took 45 ammunition, the same. Uh, same. So Beckwith believed to have carry the same kind of ammo whether you you know so we carry two 45s and they're match 45 so real good 45s and they're tuned up and you know uh we and we could fix the 45s the way we like liked them uh, we had our own armors and stuff like that so he cut the had all of our sights taken off uh the m3 grease gun you know so that we would shoot instinctive and then the other thing we would shoot is three by five inch index cards. Nice. So we would have to, and we would double tap, put two rounds and you can do it. It's so the rate of fire for M3 grease gun is really slow. So you can actually do a trigger pull and get two rounds, two rounds, two rounds, just with your trigger pull. Once you learn the rate of fire for your M3 and uh, shoot three by fives. Beckwith must have had something against three by five cards because we were shooting three by five cards. Um, let's see some of the other stuff that he had us doing. Well, we were playing football too. We would go out and, uh, he, you know, he was big college football player. You know, he, he was going to go to the NF, he, we, NFL, but he went into the military. So he thought he had a football team too. So we would go out and do football things and stuff like that. Yeah, I was really uh, upset to find that he he was a Georgia Bulldog. Um, I, I'm yeah. from Arkansas, um, so I'm you know, obviously the Razorbacks, and uh, just tired of hearing about Georgia. But you know, uh, <clears throat> take what you we can. would, and we do brick PT. We <laughs> We do. We'd have to do P, brick PT. We had these bricks, these solid bricks, and uh, we would do jump everything, jumping jacks, holding the arms out to build up our arm strength. And brick PT. Uh, this is some of the crazy stuff that we did. Uh, it was an interesting time, and of course, we were in the old stockade. They there was like four or five prisoners in the stockade, and they just took them out and sent them to the county jail there in Cumberland County. And we paid to, them to house these prisoners. And then we took over the jail. We cut, you know, the jail cell bars and stuff like that. And uh, I, I I cut some of the jail cell bars and I, I used them for uh, a stake for Hope playing horseshoes. Uh, but uh, yeah, we converted that into our facility until we built the new compound there out on range 19. Um, uh, well, I have, so we, we, I don't want to keep you all night long and we've been going over uh, for about three hours um, or uh -huh. cl cl close to, I guess, two and a half hours. Um, and uh, I, you know, I, I would absolutely let, you know, let this go all night long. Um, <laughs> Cause I, I'm really enjoying hearing all these stories and um but I have I have I have one question. Actually, two questions. One, um, would you be interested in doing another episode with us um, sure. in the future? Because yeah. uh, 
I feel like, I mean, you are a wealth of knowledge and you clearly have like a history mind on top of a military mind. And, uh, you know, I saw your, your perspective on a lot of things that we're talking about, like definitely new perspectives that, that I've, that I've not heard before. So I'm, I'm really enjoying all of that. But my other question to you is, <clears throat> so coming in the army in 1968 and then serving as an EOD tech tech escort and then coming into the unit and standing up the EOD side of that standing up Delta force doing all of these early operations seeing the progression of not only Delta force but you know special operations community as a whole and then the conventional forces as a whole retiring in 99 and here we are in 2023 when you look at like the the, the um the direction of the military and how well things are going or or what how things are going i mean I can, well i guess maybe my is my perspective but i mean how 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 is one like how is how has combat changed how has war changed and how has the soldier changed well i don't think the soldiers changed but combat has changed you know in vietnam uh, i wore jungle fatigues uh, i wore a bush hat uh, i didn't wear only one time in Vietnam did I wear a helmet and a flak jacket. We had flak jackets back then. Uh, and that was when we had a helicopter that crashed in the POL point, the refill point for helicopters. So it went down. It was part of a paint team. It was loaded with ammunition, WP, and it crashed there. We had to clear, we had to clear that site of the exploding ordnance and everything. And so that other helicopters can come in there to refuel. And in that time I had, we donned helmets and wore flak jackets. And other than that, I, I never wore a bomb suit in my career, never put one on, never operated a robot or had a robot. Uh, today now, and I'm following the technology today, and I'm very involved in what's going on in Ukraine as far as ordinance goes. Uh, I have a group of us that are what I call subject matter experts on ordinance. There's a group called Bomb Technicians Without Borders, just like there's a group Doctors Without Borders. And uh, I, I I'm in contact with those people. If they have any questions and I can help them on ordinance uh, and that with my contacts and stuff. And if I hear anything, I send it to the bomb technicians without borders. They're helping the Ukrainians. But some of the stuff there that they, they're using in Ukraine is just amazing. The Russians are using the use of drones and stuff like that's changing warfare. Um, the Russians have got these mines that they're aerial drop cluster mines that land, and depending on if they land in soft ground or hard ground, how they fix whether they soft ground, the spike comes out to help stabilize them. These are anti-personnel mines, and they they're seismic mines, and they can tell the difference between an animal walking and a human walking, and they can check you know, the seismic. Uh, footprint of a human and when it starts to the footprint starts to dissipate the seismic imprint then this fires up and then sets off the munition 
And uh, they got these same thing with the tank things that anti-tank mines, they can detect the difference between wheel vehicle, track vehicles, you know, the technology and what's going on in Ukraine is a step up with the technology that probably you saw in Afghanistan and Iraq. And it's going to be a it's going to be different. The future of warfare has going to be changing tremendously. Change from my Vietnam time to the GWAT time. The next one will be changing too. Yeah. So I have one question before we close out. Uh, pretty simple. Crazy life. You've had a crazy life. Uh, what is life for you now? Um, I do research research i for the eod warrior foundation if they have a, somebody contacts them with a historical eod question book author or documentary what any i do historical eod research for the eod warrior foundation uh since 2015 we've added names to the eod memorial from world war ii and korea based on research that i've been doing finding people that we have missed in our eod memorial i'm the assistant historian for the national ud association uh for the national ud association i'm on four different committees chairing two of the committees um i'm in contact with still whole special operations people you know if somebody passes away i put out the email to the group saying somebody's passed away same thing with the eod folks um i i people track of anything that's you know jobs for example eod jobs i get notices and then i put it out to the guys that are looking for jobs so i stay busy but doing eod type research re history research uh weapons history of weapons different weapon systems uh that's how i spend my time plus just traveling my, my we travel half the year we're going to the arctic this summer the eat canadian arctic in greenland we were in greenland in 2000 we'll be back in greenland th this summer um you know i've been to antarctica three times south georgia falklands the galapagos the amazon africa asia went to Komodo Island to see Komodo dragons, spent time in Australia. So we travel, my wife's a professional photo, uh, wildlife photographer and retired freelance photojournalist. So that's what my wife does. She's written 13, my wife has written 13 books. She published different travel articles for different publications, newspapers in the past. She's now retired on that, but she still does wildlife photography. Last summer we were photographing walruses in Alaska, a bachelor group of walruses in Alaska. I feel like so you guys still... are, I feel, I'm sorry. I feel like you guys are like in competition with each other. Like who can be, um, who can do all of these crazy things? Like that is, you have been all over this planet. Like, is there yeah. not, like, have you been to Arkansas? <laughs> yeah, I've climbed the highest points in all 50 states, except for two, missing two states. I've been to the highest point in Arkansas. And uh, I'm trying to think of that Mount uh, Magazine, right? Mm -hmm. Mount yeah, Magazine. Yep. 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 Been there. Uh, I haven't been to Bora Peak, 
in Oregon haven't been top of Oropeak and haven't been top of Mount Hood, but you know, I've climbed like Mount Rainier six times. I've I've climbed to, and one of them was the Liberty Ridge route on Mount Rainier. And if you don't know the Liberty Ridge route on Rainier, it's on the north side and it's a, it's it's an infamous route. Been a lot of fatalities on the Liberty Ridge. Liberty Ridge is a route that's very difficult once you're on it to retreat. So you're committed to go yeah, all the way over the top on Liberty. So I did Liberty Ridge and different other things. So did a lot of climbing. You still climb and do all that stuff now? We slow down. Uh, I still do peaks, you know, uh, but I don't do the technical rock climbing, ice climbing and hard mountain climbing that I used to. But you're still out there doing things yeah and my wife used to do it with me too and stuff but now my wife has developed parkinson's and um she can't really do a good job of belaying and it's just harder you know right. and so um you know catches up with you i'm 72 now um so life just catches up yeah still in there, your heart you want to do it Right. Never I mean, what's that, Tyree? Yeah, it might uh, slow down a little bit. It never stops. No, no, we're still going to be traveling. We still have a lot of things to do. There's places that I've been that I want to take her. I want to take her to New Zealand. I've been to New Zealand twice working with the New Zealand SAS. I've been to the North Island, South Island, climbed in the South Island. Well, I climbed in the North Island too, worked with them. And she hasn't been to New Zealand. And New Zealand's a great country uh so y'all to go y'all to go visit vietnam um yeah i need to do that too that'd be a cool uh, a cool place to uh go back to i mean for, for you right like considering oh yeah yeah but uh well sorry major um so i i i i really don't want to have to close this out but at the same time like <laughs> we're yeah we can uh, uh, i can send you some more information there could be other subjects that uh, I was involved in that hasn't been as publicized as as some of this other stuff. Uh, some of the missions that we had done planning for, and for some reason, for every 10 missions that we would plan for, like in Delta, maybe we'd only carry out one of them. Right. You know, so there's, you know, a lot of stuff came down that we'd have to be spun up to do, but for some reason, politics or whatever, um, we never we never executed that mission i will say um uh tyree and i when, when we do these shows when we record with people we don't really have an idea where we want the show to go and i've listened to a couple of podcasts that you've been on and obviously have read a couple of books here and there and um you, you talk we um a lot of times the conversation ends up being about like you know like i said equal claw and urgent fury and this and that but i was really happy that we were able to talk about your vietnam time um, in those early days, um, because I, I feel like, I mean, it, 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 correct me if I'm wrong, but that's 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 not something that people really talk to you much about. In Vietnam, I went on three three hundred eighty EOD in eleven months. Went three hundred eighty EOD incidents, and my longest one lasted me seven days, and I had a five day. But sometimes you do multiple a day. So, but during Vietnam, I. I went on 380 EOD incidents. I have written the history of Army EOD in Vietnam. I wrote that up. I've wrote up several histories 
that I'm passing on to the EOD folks. I'm very active and involved with the EOD folks. Just uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was down at Kirtland Air Force Base with the 21st uh, Ordnance Company, EOD, WMD, and talked to them uh, about, about our history. And they're, you know, today's EOD folks really want to know our history, where we, how we got started, the people that gone before them that created the path that they're on today. You know, we EOD in the United States, bomb disposal started up in World War II, 19, 1942, based on what was going on in Britain during the Battle of Britain. We saw a need because of the way the bombs were being more sophisticated. Germans were dropping delayed bombs. So we, so the Navy and Army set up bomb disposal schools during in 1942 you know it's that i gotta say it's that it's that trip to kirtland air force base um in new mexico that uh that helped us get to to this point because my buddy oh uh, yeah William, that's right yeah he uh i he he I, he told me that uh he's like he's like guess who's coming to, to speak with us and i was like i don't know somebody awesome and he said yeah and um i i i, I know in the email he said that i i, I begged I begged him to ask you to be on the show and that is literally what happened. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I'm really glad that, that, uh, that, that, that worked, worked out. out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, thank you, uh, William, uh, for helping me with all this. And um, for real, like I, I, this, I've been nervous slash anticipating the show because like I said, I've, 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 I've read stories about what you guys did. And I mean, it's just one of those things that you kind of like, you know, um, I, I, we, we, I, I spoke about this before, but like when he and I were active duty, when Ty, Tyree and I were active duty, <clears throat> we were stationed in Germany, we were mechanized infantry. And, you know, to talk about like going special forces was like, is a, it was a, it was a far off unattainable thing. Right. Cause it wasn't, it wasn't common. I mean, just for us, for just for just somebody to go to ranger school, you had to go to the pre-ranger course, which they held like once or twice the entire time we were in. And then I mean, we were deploying a lot. So that's why, but you know, they had PRC and then, then you had to get selected from PRC and they might only select two or three because they were sending us from Germany back to Fort Benning. And so the chances of us like getting involved in these things were slim to none. And we had I'm, the, the entire time we were active duty, we had one guy, uh, a Lieutenant who was special forces, right? He was previously special forces commissioned and got assigned to us. And he ended up going back to group. And, but that was our only experience with it other than, the ODA house that we had involvement with in Iraq. But other than that, like just the concept, this the SF Delta Ranger, all of those things were, we knew they existed, but they were way off in the distance and not attainable in our world. I even asked the guy, I mean, I told you in 2009, we had those guys come down to Fort Sill. I even asked them because I was asking like, what's the biggest differences between the green berets and Delta. And he explained, you know, the length of the Q course versus the length of the OTC, learning languages versus not learning languages, doing things versus not doing things, whatever. And I was like, and he said, he made the comment and he's like, you know, and, um, and, you know, the US government really hasn't even truly admitted that Delta exists today. And I was like, how do you even get involved in that? And he's like, you go online, you apply. And I was like, yeah. what, what do you mean you go online and apply? I guess once upon a time, or at least in 2009, there was a website where you could Enter yeah. all your, your personnel information where you airborne ranger, CIB, EIB, all that stuff. And I did. And I got my rejection letter. And mm -hmm. it is my oldest saved email in my army email. 
I still have it. Yeah, well, during my time, we would uh, do records review. MOS is immaterial. We would go through records, military records, and we'd screen military records. And then you would get a letter uh, that, that, that we're going to be at, uh, let's say, we're going to be at Fort Richardson, Alaska, at the gymnasium at this time. And you receive the letter, and then you'd go to the gymnasium with your letter, and uh, we would have a, 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 rec a recruiter. We had a regular Army recruiter. We, we have an Army recruiting group that's within the, uh, the unit. And, but there'd always be a Delta operator at one of these events. And so then we would then show a film and, uh, and then of course you had to, and also this counterintelligence guy, you have to sign non-disclosure statements uh, and we show the film. And then we would ask after the group, if anybody in this group would like to join the organization. And then those volunteers, so we'd go around to Fort Sill, Fort Riley, and all Fort Hood, and be there talking to the people that received the letter. And then we'd do the, the five event PT test that we had, uh, the, air, the old airborne PT test. And then we would do the 100 meter swim. We'd go to a gym and uh, have, and you have to swim 100 meters with fatigues and your boots on. And the swim is not timed, uh, but you, in order to go through selection, uh, you have to be a, a good swimmer because you're going to have to do river crossings. We've had one drowning death that I took during my time in the selection course. And of course, this comp, you know, we, we do have people spotters there that are, that, uh, that are unseen at where we know where people are going to do river crossings to aid in any type of rescue. But, um, but we do have, that's why we have the swimming requirement. But if you're a weak swimmer, you've been designated as a weak, in OTC, you will get additional swimming training in OTC because we want all of our guys to be strong swimmers. So that's how we've done it. And then, then what you then out of the five event PT test and the swim test, then you would report to the selection course. And today it's at Camp Dawson, West Virginia. It's where we run the selection course. Um, and then you you got to you know got to do the five event PT test, and then you do a fifteen mile night road march. That's a timed road march uh, with a forty pound pack. And then, and then what we do is we go through land nav training. Uh, we want to make sure that nobody is disqualified having weak skills in land nav. And you know, you're using the map, you're using the compass. And uh, so you have to carry the map and compass in one hand and you carry your, you carry a, a unsling weapon in the other hand. The only time you're allowed to sling your weapon is when you're doing river crossings. You're then allowed to sling your weapon, but you have to hand carry that weapon. And of course, carrying an M3 grease gun is next to useless, trying to beat your way through brush with an M3. Um, but that's that's kind of how we, in my time, it was done. But we also have the recruiting section, like you said.
yeah that yeah i you know I, i'm at may will be 22 years and so uh my 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 time is is pretty much done in um uh but uh if, if i could if i could go back if i could go back knowing what i know now for sure i would i would love to have given uh give, given a shot you know what i mean but you know it is what it is at least at least at least go right and, and get told no face to face but you know yeah. that is what it, it was is. I, yeah i enjoyed my t- you know my time in delta and of course in 1992 i i went to jsoc 92 mm-hmm. to 99 92 to 96 i was the exercise sergeant major for jsoc and then 96 to 99, I was the J3 Special Plans Sergeant Major in charge of target defeat of hardened targets. End it. <laughs> but that, that was... Was that... Um, oh. I'm sorry. I, I, was just I know say, Tyree like, disappeared. Yeah, he, he probably getting yelled at I right now. I need to probably let you guys go. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll plan another one uh, sometime. I, I would, I would, I absolutely love that. Yeah, Tyree's probably getting yelled at. Uh, I don't know. Just had to. I'm, to I'm, I'm surprised I'm not yelled at. <laughs> well, um, yeah, Sergeant Major, I greatly appreciate you coming on the show. Like for real, this has been a truly an honor uh, for us to have you, and um, uh, definitely look forward to another time. Um, definitely, and and thanks to my buddy William for helping set this up and and make it happen. I I can't I cannot thank you enough. Okay. Till next time. Till next time. So I'm going to close this uh, completely out. Hey, everybody, thanks for listening to Before I Forget. Please remember to like, listen, share, subscribe, and watch, even though this one is doing this weird Max Hedrum kind of thing. Uh, it's going to be cool. Uh, thank you for listening to Before I Forget, and uh, we'll see you on the next one. Kevin, say bye. Bye, Kevin. Bye.